Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back to the grand finale of season one. Today's episode is a big boy, so buckle up because today we'll be finishing up our eczematous reaction pattern by going over the most common chronic skin condition affecting people of all ages, including 25% of kids. We're talking about atopic dermatitis. Since it is so common and can be so miserable for patients, I hope you can pick up some pearls from today's episode to bring your patients and affected family and friends some relief. Before we do that, we'll start with a comprehensive review of our reaction patterns and mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. Let's see if you've actually been paying attention or if you're just trying to look cool blaring the podcast with the top down and the bass cranked up with your shiny 24-inch rims. Name the five reaction patterns, and name any subcategories that we've discussed. Our five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous disorders. Again, we break the first category of papulosquamous rashes into five subcategories. 1. Psoriasiform, which includes psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, mycosis fungoides, small and large plaque parapsoriasis, and pityriasis rubra pilaris. The second category is pityriasiform disorders, which includes pityriasis rosea, secondary syphilis, and tinea versicolor. 3. Lichenoid disorders, which includes lichen planus and its many variants, including lichenoid drug eruptions. 4. Annular, including tinea, subacute cutaneous lupus, and erythema annularis centrifugum, and 5. Erythroderma. Remember, for erythroderma, we think of five main causes, which are 1. Psoriasis, 2. Dermatitis, which includes atopic dermatitis, allergic contact dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, and chronic actinic dermatitis, and then 3. Drug rashes can lead to erythroderma, 4. CTCL, including erythrodermic mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome, and five, the miscellaneous category, including conditions like PRP. So there's your papulosquamous disorders that we've covered. Next, we have our eczematous reaction pattern, which we'll finish up today. Remember, we think of eczematous rashes as being acute, subacute, or chronic. Any of the eczematous conditions can take on any of these three forms, but because of their predictable course, we group them into acute eczema caused by irritant and allergic contact dermatitis, subacute eczema, which includes stasis dermatitis, and lastly, chronic eczema, including asteatotic eczema and atopic dermatitis. Doctor, my grandson has some bad eczema and it's not getting better with the salt scrubs we're trying each night. Can you help him? Yes, of course we can help him, but first let's talk a little background on atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is a specific form of eczema that is often the first manifestation of the atopic triad, which includes atopic dermatitis, asthma, and allergic rhinitis. This triad can start nearly simultaneously or in succession in what we call the atopic march. There is also a second, little secret triad for atopic dermatitis itself, which is 1. Dermatitis, which is obviously an objective skin finding, 2. Pruritus, which is subjective, and then three, a chronic relapsing and remitting course. 
All right, wise guy, tell me a little something about the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis and give me one of the genes that can be mutated. So as far as epidemiology for atopic dermatitis, 60% is the number to remember because around 60% of cases start by age 1 and 60% of cases will resolve by 12 years old. Atopic dermatitis is due to several genetic and environmental factors. Some studies say that if one parent is atopic, there is a greater than 50% chance that their kids will be atopic. As far as gene mutations, think about filaggrin, which is a filament aggregating protein. Filaggrin. Filament aggregating protein, which gets broken down into natural moisturization factor. With loss of function filaggrin mutations, there is less filaggrin, less natural moisturization factor, and more transepidermal water loss, leading to drier atopic skin. Besides filaggrin mutations, atopic dermatitis patients can also be deficient in one to several types of ceramides. Remember from our intro podcast that ceramides are sphingolipids that are the mortar that holds the corneocytes, aka the bricks, together in our stratum corneum. With crappy mortar due to deficient ceramides, we get a crappy barrier which struggles at its job of keeping the good stuff in like water and the bad stuff out like irritants and allergens. Because atopic dermatitis patients have this poor skin barrier, they are susceptible to xerosis and environmental irritants and allergens that lead to inflammation and itching in their skin. And what type of inflammatory response is present in acute atopic dermatitis versus that of chronic atopic dermatitis? Acute atopic dermatitis typically has an overactive Th2 response with increased IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. The IL-4 activates more Th2 cells, the IL-5 activates eosinophils, and IL-13 promotes IgE production. Again, acute atopic dermatitis typically has an overactive Th2 response, with interleukin-4 activating more Th2 cells, IL-5 activating eosinophils, and IL-13 promoting IgE production. Then there's chronic atopic dermatitis, which converts to more of a Th1 response with interferon gamma and IL-12. It's helpful to know that acute is more Th2-driven and chronic is Th1-driven because pregnancy is more of a Th2 state. This helps explain the occurrence of atopic eruption of pregnancy, which is one of our four main pregnancy dermatoses. Can you name them? How about 1. Atopic eruption of pregnancy 2. Polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, which used to be called PUP, which stands for Pruritic Urticarial Papules and Plaques of Pregnancy 3. Pemphigoid gestationis, which is also known as herpes gestationis, and 4. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. We'll talk all about the pregnancy dermatoses and cutaneous changes of pregnancy in a later podcast. Alright, so getting back to atopic dermatitis. It can present in patients of all ages, but since it tends to present a little differently in each group, we'll break it down into four forms. 1. Infantile. 2. Childhood. 3. Adolescent or adult forms, and 4. Senile onset forms. You'll see variation in the exact ages for these categories, but for simplicity's sake, consider infantile onset atopic dermatitis from 2 months to 2 years, childhood onset from 2 to 12 years old, adolescent or adult onset from 12 to 60 years old, and senile onset greater than 60 years old. 
Infantile atopic dermatitis usually presents with erythema and scale on the cheeks, scalp, and neck, along with the extensor arms and legs. Remember that we classically think of atopic dermatitis on the flexors in children and psoriasis affecting the extensors. But for infants with atopic derm, don't get thrown off by the fact that they get lesions on their extensor elbows and other areas. Also, remember from the subderm episode that atopic dermatitis tends to have a later onset than subderm and is more inflammatory and more itchy, causing baby to be more fussy. Infants with atopic dermatitis can also develop more exudative plaques as well. And why are these atopic plaques more likely to have Staphylococcus aureus colonization compared to the plaques of psoriasis? Up to 90% of atopic dermatitis patients are colonized with Staph aureus because their skin has fewer antimicrobial peptides such as human beta defensins and cathelicidins. This contrasts to psoriasis, which has elevated antimicrobial peptide levels, which explains why it is unusual for psoriatic plaques to get secondarily infected. Next, we have childhood atopic dermatitis, which starts at age 2 years old. It is sometimes called the itch that rashes since the normal appearing flexural areas of the antecubital and popliteal fossas become itchy and patients scratch at them, leading to the classic chronic lesions of excoriations and lichenified plaques. This itch-scratch cycle can get severe enough to affect the patient's sleep and even their school performance. These kids can also have acute flares with more erythema, pruritus, and sometimes even vesicles and oozing. Okay, you have one of these oozy, itchy, crusty, attention-deficit children come to your clinic, and you think they have atopic dermatitis, but you're not sure. Give me some other associated findings that can give you a hint. Let's go head-to-toe, starting at the eyes with Denny Morgan lines and allergic shiners. Denny Morgan lines are horizontal folds of the lower eyelid which start at the medial canthus, while allergic shiners are dark circles under the eyes due to nasal or sinus congestion from allergic rhinitis. This allergic rhinitis can also lead to an exaggerated nasal crease from kids rubbing their nose, which is also called the allergic salute. While you're thinking of the face, remember that kids with atopic derm are also more likely to get pityriasis alba, which most often appears as hypopigmented patches on the face and neck. While you're thinking of the neck, remember that atopic patients can also have hyperlinear neck folds. And while you're thinking hyperlinearity, think about hyperlinear palms of atopic patients, which can give a great clue if you're unsure of the diagnosis. You'll feel just like a palm reader. I see you have hyperlinear palms. I'm guessing your mom or dad had eczema or asthma as a child. (laughs) Oh, you did, did you? I'm guessing you also have dogs and cats at home and forgot to vacuum your carpet for a few months. Oh, I'm right again. I see that you love hot showers and forget to moisturize on most days. Lady, you're scaring us. Okay, so besides your Denny Morgan lines, allergic shiners, nasal crease, P. alba, and hyperlinear neck folds and palms, many patients will have generalized xerosis or even ichthyosis vulgaris. Another common skin finding in up to 40% of atopic patients is keratosis pilaris, which are the follicular plugs or chicken skin commonly found on the proximal outer arms, thighs, and buttocks. Alright, so that's the infantile and childhood forms of eczema, which are sometimes categorized together as early onset atopic dermatitis. Next, let's just briefly mention our third and fourth types before going into diagnosing and treating these patients. 
The third type is adolescent or adult atopic dermatitis, which has a pretty similar presentation to that of childhood cases with involvement of the flexures, but keep in mind that for adults, they will often have eczema of the hands as well. Ooh, ooh, let me see those hands too. If you have an adult with hand dermatitis and you're not sure if it's eczema or psoriasis, a nice pearl is to have the patient use calcipatriene on it. If it's atopic dermatitis, it shouldn't really help and can actually flare it, whereas the calcipatriene should help psoriasis on the hands. And then lastly, we have the fourth type of atopic dermatitis, which is senile onset, which describes extreme xerosis that is often triggered by sweating or stress in patients that are older than 60 years old, which is apparently old enough to call someone senile. You know, I actually coined the term senile onset in my younger years as the brightest dermatologist in academia. And now I'm 65, have senile onset atopic dermatitis, and I hate myself. So tell me, what are five things that can trigger or aggravate atopic dermatitis for me or any other curmudgeon for that matter? All right, how about fragrances in lotions, laundry detergents, and perfume? certain fabrics like wool and polyester, food allergies in kids which are most commonly wheat, eggs, milk, peanuts, and soy, other allergens like dust mites in dry environments such as wintertime and northern climates, and then we have smoking, stress, sweating from excessive heat or exercise, harsh soaps, and showering too long or with the water too hot. If you like acronyms and mnemonics like me, remember FADS for atopic dermatitis triggers. F for fragrance, fabrics, and food allergens, A for other allergens like pet dander, D for dry environments and detergents, and S for stress, smoking, sweating, harsh soaps, or showers that are too long, too often, or too hot. Or if you like visuals, embrace yourselves for this one. Picture Dr. Grumpy Pants getting into a hot, dry sauna, wearing a wool robe, smoking a cigarette, Stressing about somebody letting their dog into the sauna as he brushes the pet dander off the bench before he sits down and starts carrying on. I don't know why the owner lets his damn dog sleep in here, but no matter, I'm over it. I'm not mad because the big buck store just had a BOGO sale on this new Mountain Breeze laundry detergent and fabric softener. I love it, but damn does it make me itch. Alright, sorry for the weird visual, but if it helps you to help somebody else avoid these triggers, then it's worth it. So let's go into the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis. It is typically a clinical diagnosis, so we'll talk about these criteria before we discuss the biopsy findings and different types of allergy testing that can be done. As far as the clinical criteria, there have been many proposed criteria that all share some common features. Three essential features are pruritus, an eczematous rash, and a chronic relapsing course. Again, three essential features for atopic dermatitis are pruritus, an eczematous rash, and a chronic relapsing course. That eczematous rash can be acute, subacute, or chronic, and it presents with a typical morphology in the different age groups that we've already discussed. Then you have important features that are seen in most cases and support the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis, which are early age of onset, xerosis, and atopy, which can be diagnosed via a personal or family history of the atopic triad, or by IgE reactivity. Then there's associated features that are more nonspecific but suggestive, and these include an atypical vascular response such as facial pallor, keratosis pilaris, pityriasis alba, 
hyperlinear palms, ichthyosis, periorbital changes like Denny-Morgan lines, and lichenification or perigo lesions. Then finally, you must exclude other conditions on the differential such as scabies, seborrheic dermatitis, or contact dermatitis. So to quick sum up these clinical findings of atopic dermatitis, the three essential features are pruritus, the eczematous skin findings, and a chronic relapsing course. The important features that are seen in most cases are early age of onset, atopy, and xerosis. The less specific associated features are atypical vascular responses, KP, P-alba, hyperlinear palms, ichthyosis, ocular or periorbital changes, lichenification or perigo lesions, and lastly you must exclude other diagnoses such as contact dermatitis. Well, how are you going to rule out contact dermatitis or other contributing allergens in these cases? Remember from the contact dermatitis lecture that patch testing will detect type 4 delayed hypersensitivities to a variety of antigens that are contacting the skin. And this is very different from the allergy testing that is done to detect sensitization or IgE to specific allergens. These other allergy tests for type 1 IgE responses can be done in one of two ways. One being blood tests including various immunoassays and two being skin prick testing. Again, you can detect allergen-specific IgE by performing immunoassays using the patient's blood or by doing skin prick testing. Do you automatically test all of these to make the diagnosis of atopic derm? No. But do you need to understand them and know their utility for atopic derm patients? Duh. Keep in mind that the results of these allergy tests have to be taken with a grain of salt, though. Some people test positive for IgE to various allergens but are completely asymptomatic. Some estimate that 60% of normal people have IgE that's sensitive to various food allergens but are completely asymptomatic. On the contrary, people can be negative for IgE sensitization but still have a relevant allergy. This doesn't mean that these tests are completely worthless, but they have to be put in the context of the patient's clinical situation. So let's talk some basics of allergy testing, starting with the blood test immunoassays. These are often referred to as RAST testing, which stands for Radioallergosorbent Test. However, since the radioactive tests have mostly been replaced by ELISA, it's best to refer to them as allergy immunoassays. Either way, the patient's blood is drawn and the immunoassays detect antigen-specific IgE to various foods, insect venoms, medicines like penicillins, environmental allergens like pollen and dust mites, and different occupational allergens like latex. Some advantages compared to the skin testing that we'll discuss in a minute are that immunoassays are convenient, unaffected by medicines like antihistamines, and don't carry a risk for allergic reactions. Disadvantages of immunoassays are lower specificity and higher cost. Then there's skin testing for allergies, which includes skin prick and patch testing. For more on patch testing, listen back to the allergic contact dermatitis lecture. But let's quick talk about skin prick testing. Like the immunoassays, they detect allergen-specific IgE, but this IgE is detected on the mast cells in the skin. A variety of allergens are pricked into the skin, and a positive result is read when mast cell activation leads to a wheel and flare reaction. Advantages to skin prick testing are that it's fast, more affordable, and more specific than the immunoassays. Disadvantages are the risk for allergic reactions and anaphylaxis. Although I'm mentioning skin prick testing here in the Atopic Derm podcast, keep in mind that it is more often used for patients with allergic asthma, rhinitis, conjunctivitis, and other suspected allergies. I have too many patients coming to me after a skin prick test allergic to everything under the sun. While I have a prescription for you, why don't you move to Mars, you imbecile? 
Now let's move on. Give me the histologic findings of acute, subacute, and chronic atopic dermatitis. As I mentioned earlier, atopic derm is more of a clinical diagnosis, so biopsy is obviously done if the diagnosis is unclear. The findings will also depend on whether you biopsy an acute, subacute, or chronic lesion. Acute atopic skin will show a lot more spongiosis. Remember that this sponge results from inflammation and edema, so that edema increases the space between epidermal cells to the point that even vesicles or bulla can form. And since it's inflamed, you will also see perivascular lymphocytes and histiocytes along with the occasional eosinophil. Then you have subacute atopic derm, which has less impressive spongiosis and more acanthosis. The more chronic and itchy lesion like atopic derm gets, the thicker the epidermis gets, resulting in acanthosis under the scope. Chronic atopic skin will have acanthosis to the point that it looks psoriasiform, along with minimal spongiosis, dermal fibrosis, and hyperkeratosis that correlates with the scale seen clinically. Congratulations, you've helped the patient meet their deductible with all of your expensive tests. Tell me how to treat these patients before you order anything else and put these families on the streets. The most basic and important component of treatment is moisturizing the skin daily. This is best done within a few minutes of getting out of the bath or shower using bland emollients or even plain petrolatum. As far as prescription treatments for atopic dermatitis, we follow a somewhat similar treatment ladder to what we discussed in psoriasis, starting with topicals and escalating to UV treatments and systemic medications if needed. And remember to always, always counsel patients on the triggers to avoid. Can you remember five of them? So remember fads if you want, or your sweaty Dr. Grumpy Pants visual. There's room here in the sweat box. Care to join? And again, those triggers are fragrances, fabrics like wool and polyester, food allergens, other allergens like pet dander, dry environments, detergents, stress, smoking, sweating, harsh soaps, and showers that are often too hot or too long. Then we usually start with low to mid-potency topical steroids on the body, such as triamcinolone or fluocinolone oil. For severely affected patients, wet wraps or the two-pajama technique can be really helpful. And how is it done? You soak one pair of pajamas in warm water, you apply the topical steroids immediately after bathing, and then you put on the wrung-out wet pajamas and wear dry pajamas over the top of them. In the morning, the patients bathe and apply moisturizers as usual. When it comes to topical steroids, patients should occasionally take a break either on the weekends or use them for two weeks on and one week off to avoid tachyphylaxis. Ah, tachyphylaxis, when medications become ineffective when they're used too often. Or, newsflash, it's just hogwash and the patients are in fact non-compliant. When using topical treatments on the face or intertriginous areas, lower potency steroids like hydrocortisone or non-steroidals can be helpful. Now give me three non-steroidal topical treatments for atopic dermatitis. How about the two calcineurin inhibitors Pemecrolimus, aka Eladel, and Tacrolimus, aka Protopic, along with the newer Crisoborol, aka Eucrisa, which is a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. All of these are approved for kids 2 and older. And what is another medication we've discussed with the same mechanism of action as Eucresa? 
and that would be a premolast, aka Otesla, which we discussed in the psoriasis episodes. It's also important to mention that Elidel and Protopic both carry a black box warning for lymphomas. However, numerous recent meta-analyses with over 10 years of data have not shown an association. But it's still important to warn and educate parents on this issue if you want them to actually fill and use the prescription. Alright, so if the topicals aren't quite cutting it, you can always add on non-sedating antihistamines like cetirizine, loratadine, or fexafenidine in the morning, along with antihistamines with sedative side effects such as Benadryl or hydroxyzine at night. Then we can also start systemic therapy with UV treatments such as narrowband UVB to be done two to three times weekly over many weeks to months. Keep in mind that patients can often have secondary infections, so topical mupiracin or a 10-day course of antibiotics with staph coverage can be helpful. These staph superinfections may also be kept at bay by having patients do bleach baths one to three times weekly. This can be done by adding a quarter cup of bleach to a half-filled tub or a half cup of bleach to a full tub. There is some new literature debating the effectiveness of these bleach baths, but personal experience has shown them to be quite helpful for patients. And when all of this is still not helping, or if patients come to the office with severe atopic dermatitis, we reach for the big guns, and these include prednisone, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolate mofetil, and methotrexate. There is also a new injectable medication known as dupilumab, aka dupixent, that is FDA-approved for atopic dermatitis patients along with asthmatics 12 and older. And what of the mechanism, and the dosing, and what of the side effects of this drug? Dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody that works by binding and blocking the interleukin-4 receptor and thus interferes with interleukin-4 and 13. Again, dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody that works by binding and blocking the interleukin-4 receptor and thus interferes with interleukin-4 and 13. It is dosed starting with two 300mg sub-Q injections on day one and then one 300mg injection every two weeks thereafter. The main side effects for dupilumab involve the eyes, which include dry eyes, conjunctivitis, and keratitis. Like many drugs, there are also rare reports of hypersensitivity reactions and anaphylaxis. Alright, so to quickly sum up treatment options for atopic dermatitis, step 1, discuss triggers. Step 2, counsel on the importance of daily moisturization with non-scented creams or ointments, and then we can reach for prescription topical treatments, including topical steroids, the calcineurin inhibitors pimecrolimus, a.k.a. Elidel, and tacrolimus, a.k.a. Protopic, or the PDE4 inhibitor chrysoborol, a.k.a. Eucrisa. Patients might also benefit from non-sedating and sedating antihistamines, bleach baths, and topical or PO antibiotics for secondary impetigenization. Then you have systemic treatments like narrowband UVB, which are usually tried before the big guns, which include prednisone, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolate mofetil, methotrexate, and dupilumab. All right, I know we've covered a lot, so let's take a little mental break and listen in to Dr. Grumpy Pants counseling the parents of a new patient with untreated atopic dermatitis. Okay, so Billy here has a condition called atopic dermatitis. Newsflash, it's often called eczema, and it usually runs in families along with asthma and hay fever or seasonal allergies. I'm going to give you treatments today, but we have to talk about the triggers that are making this worse. Look out for fragrance in any lotions or laundry detergents you're using. You want to use free and clear detergents. Look out for fabrics like wool and polyester. Check your bedsheets, and if there's polyester, consider switching them. 
and consider switching them for 100% cotton. Food allergies can flare things up as well, but we're only going to go down that rabbit hole if you're not getting better with the treatments that I give you today. Other allergens, like pet dander, can also make it worse. No, you don't have to execute the cat that's been in the family for 15 years, but vacuum up after that darn rodent. The dry house in the wintertime can make things worse, so consider a humidifier, but make sure you clean your air filters. Then no, of course, smoking, emotional stress sweating, and showering with hot water or for too long can dry out your skin. And speaking of showering, you want to moisturize within three minutes of getting out of the shower in order to lock in the moisture. This is imperative. I'm going to give you a prescription ointment called Triamcinolone to be used twice daily during the weekdays, and I want you to moisturize with bland creams or Vaseline on the days you're not using this cream. I'm going to see you back in a month, and we will see if you can follow directions. All right, my friends, I know this is a big episode, but if you're still with me, take a deep breath, grab a quick sip of your coffee, and let's hit the highlights for atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is the most common chronic skin condition affecting up to 25% of kids, with 60% of cases starting by one year of life and 60% of cases resolving by age 12. It is due to several genetic factors including filaggrin mutations and ceramide abnormalities along with environmental triggers and a lack of antimicrobial peptides that lead to 90% of patients having staph colonization. Remember FADS for the triggers for atopic dermatitis. F is for fragrances fabrics like wool or polyester, and food allergies including wheat, eggs, milk, peanuts, and soy allergies. A is for other allergens like pet dander, D for dry environments and detergents, and S for stress, smoking, sweating, harsh soaps, or showers that are too hot, too often, or too long. We broke atopic derm into four forms based on the age of onset. One, infantile, which usually involves the head, neck, and extensors. 2. Childhood, which classically affects the flexures. 3. Atopic or adult forms, which affect similar areas and especially the hands. And then 4. Senile onset forms with more severe xerosis. Then we have the list of associated features with atopic dermatitis, which from head to toe include Denny Morgan lines, allergic shiners, a nasal crease, also known as the allergic salute, pityriasis alba, hyperlinear neck folds, hyperlinear palms, keratosis pilaris, generalized xerosis, and even ichthyosis vulgaris. Diagnosis may include a biopsy which shows more spongiosis and inflammation in acute cases, whereas more chronic cases of atopic dermatitis will have more acanthosis and less spongiosis and inflammation. Allergy testing includes immunoassays that are often called RAS tests along with skin prick testing or patch tests to rule out contact dermatitis. Then your treatment options include daily moisturization and trigger avoidance, along with topical treatments including topical steroids, the calcineurin inhibitors pemecrolimus and tacrolimus, or the PDE inhibitor crisoborol, aka eucrisa. Patients may also need non-sedating and sedating antihistamines, bleach baths, and topical or PO antibiotics for secondary impetigenization. Then you have systemic treatments like narrowband UVB, which is usually tried before the big guns including prednisone, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolate mofetil, methotrexate, and dupilumab. Alright, that's all I've got for you. For a great paper on diagnosis and management of atopic dermatitis, feel free to check out the JAD CME from 2013 that's titled Guidelines of Care for the Management of Atopic Dermatitis. 
And again, I want to thank you all so much for listening into the podcast. It's been a fun journey so far, and I look forward to getting season two of the podcast out to you as soon as I can in the upcoming months. In the meantime, feel free to re-listen to these episodes a few times to really get the content down. Repetition is everything. And again, I want to thank my program director, Dr. Krishnamurthy, for his support, and also my old bandmate, Dan Thompson, for helping with the editing of the podcast. Dan and I actually recorded the intro music with our band Key Lime Special many years ago, so I thought it would be fun to end season one by letting the intro song play out, and it's called Siesta Key. I co-wrote it along with Dan and my younger brother Garrett, who is playing drums on the track, so I hope you enjoy. Thanks again, everyone. myself free to that deck in the village for a daiquiri now.
sunshine, spotlights on Me the helicopter found that party of a lifetime Through the eyes of the key line Kick back, relax, if you wanna find a good time Spotlights on, me the crowd just found that party of a lifetime Through the eyes of the key line Kick back, relax, girls with the sunshine Spotlights on me, I hope you just found that party of a lifetime it's the sweetest feeling. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Grand Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grand Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.